is this working yet? Hello. Seven minutes of sheer terror, right? I watched The Mandalorian, so I know all about space stuff now. It's pretty impressive what's going on there. It's pretty awesome. I've been watching uh, on, on uh, our Apple TV, I've been watching this podcast uh, called, uh, well, shoot, now I forgot it, What We Saw. I don't know if you all heard of it. Uh, it's this, it, it's, it's nothing like that. It, okay, there's no, none of this cool space stuff flying around. It's a guy who's an astronaut talking about the moon landing, the last big time we landed on someplace. And so he has this inside uh, knowledge to the moon and what, what it all meant for our culture back then. He, he was an 11-year-old, and he says something really funny. He goes, I was always an astronaut. I just lacked training when I was 11 years old. It's like, oh man, so his head is in this. And then he goes into even more detail of what it was like for those two astronauts to land on the moon. And it's fun to see it happening again. This time there's no one on there, but according to Elon Musk, soon there will be. Uh, But so we're heading this way and it's this constant journey into unknown. We don't know what's up there. We didn't know it was on the moon when we landed on the moon. We didn't, we, we, we didn't know what kind of fallout there would be. It was a difficult time in that era, back in the 60s, to be an American, to be in this world. There was this thing called the Cold War. Sputnik was flying over our nation several times a day. There was a constant threat of missiles. And so you had this space race to get to the moon first, to get to the unknown, to get out of, of, the, to, to get out of here, to prove ourselves. There was this expedition into the wilderness. And in this documentary or this podcast goes into the limits that were broken. No one had ever done this before. No one had ever landed. No one had ever uh, teetered on total destruction and pulled it off because they almost lost that ship several times. And I would love to know the backstory. Maybe we'll get it in a few years of this and how many times it almost went wrong. Because it's curious to see when things almost go wrong, how did they correct? I'm always curious to find out. But this idea of pushing into the unknown, pushing into the wilderness, is something that we see throughout Scripture. There's always themes when you read the Bible uh, from cover to cover, if you want to do it that way, or when you pick and choose. You'll always see these certain themes pop up, and wilderness is one of them. Pushing yourself past what you're comfortable with. It's this invitation that we see to come. And what we find when we go into the wilderness is we find a lot about ourselves. But the most we find is we find a lot about Jesus. We find out that he's in the wilderness with us. And this is the beauty of Lent. This is the first Sunday of Lent, as Jen was talking about. And these seasons, uh, this is one of those seasons where we pause and we, we do so with intention and we examine our lives And for many of us, examining our lives is a version of wilderness that we're absolutely terrified of. We'd rather go to Mars than look into our own hearts. And so this season is a time where we pause and intentionally look at ourselves up close. Some of us will fast this season to to really put in some concentration uh, into our journey. Some of us will will remove dairy or sugar or, or sex or television to remove distractions to find out where God is calling you towards. Others won't. You won't fast from anything and that's fine. Your salvation is not hinging on you fasting from something for Lent. However, the invitation for you to journey into yourself still stands. 
It's, not, it's through this time of Lent where we discover more about us and more of what it means to follow Jesus. I was reading in Mark and this verse stood out to me more than ever this week. And it's in Mark 8.34 and it's an invitation for Jesus. He says this, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now we look at that and go, wow, that's pretty harsh to say. But what, what, this is, it, what Jesus is doing here is he's inviting the disciples to something. He's not inviting them to a destination per se. He's not saying, come over to my house. We'll watch the football game. Don't worry, we'll sit outside. He's not saying that. He's, he's saying, follow me. It's an invitation. Yes, there's a destination because we all know heaven, heaven is clear. But Jesus is calling us to himself He's calling us to a journey with him. It's an invitation that invites us to to begin the process of following him. And in that, we become more and more like him. But like this journey to Mars or a journey you take to this unknown destination, wherever you're going and you don't know, this journey you take into yourselves, the journey towards Jesus takes a lot of time. And it's full of twists and turns and there's going to be days where you're taking a lot of ground and there's going to be days where it feels like you have setback after setback and then there's going to be days where you believe beyond a shadow of a doubt you're on the right path and then there's going to be a day where you are full of doubt this is the journey towards jesus and what i've found is that whenever i take a step in the direction of jesus i'm always met with this little obstacle so if I, if I set a goal that I want to read through the New Testament in a year, sure, I get up first three days, awesome. Fourth day, something happens and I'm super tired and I'm not able to wake up. And then I realize this, sleeping is awesome. And I don't want to wake up to read my Bible. So I'll, wake, I'll read my Bible later in the evening. And then that doesn't work out because there's always some kind of show or YouTube channel to watch. And then what happens is the obstacle of myself stands in the way for my transformation. This happens in our journeys. As we enter into the self-examination, you're going to run into yourself. You're going to find setbacks. And oftentimes the setback is you. Anytime we step step towards Jesus, there's the enemy that says, I don't want them getting close to Christ. Let's put things in their way. And that happens. And so as we begin to journey towards Jesus and walk with him towards him, which is weird, you walk with Jesus towards Jesus, uh, you're going to find some setbacks. In no place in scripture is this journey personified more than the book of Exodus. Now, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that I love Exodus. And I want to promise you that I did not push Exodus onto this season Because if I had my way, it would be Exodus all day, every day. And then we'd flip over to the book of Acts. And for fun, we'd go to Leviticus. But Exodus was brought to us as as lead pastors, as teaching pastors. And and I just stayed back and went, this is great. I'm fine. Let's go. So Exodus is the story of a journey. Exodus is the story of the people of Israel leaving captivity of Egypt and entering into the promised land. They're intentionally stepping out into the desert. They're stepping out into the uncomfortable. If you look at your Bible, if you go to the end of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 50, we come, you, you, you finish the story of Joseph and his brothers, 
You come to Genesis 50, and all of a sudden, Joseph and his brothers have died. Their story's over. But as you read, their families, the 12, they would eventually be tribes of Israel, start growing. They start having more and more kids. And then as you turn the page into Exodus 1, it's not like, and then the next day. There's a huge chunk of time between the closing of Genesis 50 and the beginning of Exodus chapter 1. A lot of things took place. The people of Israel made their homes in Egypt. This was all foretold to Abraham previously. So this was all, not, this was all planned. This was all on the radar. They're going to go to Egypt and then God's going to call them out. But they didn't expect to be in Egypt for this long. In fact, in, later in Exodus, you see, this, uh, you see in Exodus 12, they were in Egypt for 430 years. 430 years. That's older than our country's been in existence. Think back 430 years. I'm not great at math. That's 16-something engineers in the room. Help me out. Yes, no. 1,500? 1590. 1590. What's happening in the world 400 and that 1590? Anyone know? I don't. That's why I'm asking you. It's a long time ago. It's before the pilgrims came to America. It's before the American Revolution. It's before a lot of things. So imagine being stuck in the land of Egypt for 430 years. What do you forget? in 400 years. We have forgotten a lot about the roots of our nation in just a little over 200 years. What do you forget in 400 years? Here's what Egypt forgot. It says in the very first part of Exodus that there rose a king, they called him a pharaoh, in Egypt, and they forgot who Joseph was. They forgot the good things that Joseph had done. And then he saw the people of Israel not as a, as a sign of, of someone who helped them get through the great famine, but someone who was a threat. And so they started to oppress the people of Israel. They put them in slavery. We've seen Prince of Egypt. We know the story, right? They're in slavery for that long. They're building bricks day after day after day, building bricks, and they're being oppressed. And every time the people of, of Egypt tried to uh, put controls on them, the people of Israel got stronger and stronger until finally they said, let's just have a genocide and make them skip a generation. And this is where the birth of Moses comes. This idea of being stuck somewhere for 430 years, it kind of, it, it captures my mind because there's something that happens to a person in this. You forget who you are. Imagine being, you're 430 years into this and, and you don't know who your great-grandfather was. You don't, Jacob? Who's Jacob? Israel? I don't know Israel. What about, you know, Joseph? We don't even know Joseph. If the Pharaoh forgot Joseph, they forgot Joseph. They start to lose their identity. And now this Moses guy comes who was kind of this, insider outsider to both the house of pharaoh and to the people of israel he comes along and he wants to take us into the wilderness to worship this god that we've only heard about can you understand the doubt that would happen in the people of israel i wouldn't want to go the last time we saw moses here he killed one of those egyptian dudes and now he wants to take us into the desert uh would you follow a murderer into the desert 
No. It's like some it's like a mobster asking you if you want to go for a joyride in Vegas out into the into the wilderness. People don't come back from those. And so here's the situation that that the people of Israel are faced with. They were slaves. They defined themselves as slaves. This is what they were. And that's all they would ever be. And Moses comes and says, this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they go, who wants wants to take you to the promised land? You'd have some doubt too, wouldn't you? Not only this, but this God, you don't know this God. You've been surrounded yourself with, you've surrounded by this culture of Egyptian gods. And so this new God, you're like, how does he fare with these other gods? I'm glad you asked. The plagues. Now this is all going to make sense, hopefully, I promise. The plagues come along. And the plagues that Moses gets is God's reminding the people of Israel who he is, and he's stronger than the gods of Egypt. The river into blood, the locusts, the frogs, the flies, the darkness, the death of the firstborn are all specific attacks confronting gods and goddesses of Egypt. And with every one, God says, I'm stronger, I'm better, I'm wiser, I'm the true God. And so God is wooing this people group out of their other lives into the wilderness so God can bring them new life. And this is where we start to catch up with the people of Israel in in our series. There's one more stop they made. Here at the Red Sea, they're stuck between water and Pharaoh. Where are they going to go? And they cry out to God. And God comes and he splits the sea and they walk across the sea. And then the last one, the God of Pharaoh, who thought himself as a God, is wiped away by water. God has proven himself over and over and over again. So 430 years go by and they're a little bit lost. They don't know who they are. Finally, they cross the Red Sea. They see that God is mighty. They followed him into the wilderness. And then Exodus 15 comes along. Here's what happens in verse 15, 22. I believe it'll be on the screen behind me. Then Moses led the people of Israel from the Red Sea and then went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled into the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, They couldn't drink the water because it was bitter. That is why they called this place Mara. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we we to drink? And we don't know a lot of what's happening. It kind of goes quickly. You can look at Numbers chapter 33, and you'll see a little bit of a recap. It's really not much more than we get here. But here's something that stands out. What happened three days ago for these people? Do you remember the Red Sea? Could you ever forget that happening? Yet here's the people of Israel. They walk through the Red Sea. Three days later, what are they complaining about? We are thirsty. Three days prior, they saw God do some of his most amazing work. They saw God come down in a mighty way and split the sea. Walking across on dry land, I like to picture the whale going by, just like in Prince of Egypt, the whale going by and you see the silhouette. And they're walking across. Three days. Would you ever forget that? No. But for some reason, the people of Israel forgot. 
They forgot what Jesus has done. They forgot what God's done. When they looked back, they didn't see an army anymore. They saw freedom. And they began to grumble because they forgot. Now the grumble is the Hebrew word. It means to lodge a complaint against Moses. So what the people of Israel were doing was asking for Moses' manager, right? They were saying, I have a complaint to give you. Uh, Basically, that's the equivalent of what's happening. They were promised a festival. And now three days later, all they are is thirsty. And they want their water and they're not getting it in time. And they're grumbling and complaining but in this complaint, you see the first thing that we realize as we, gender, as we uh, journey into wilderness or uh, go on our journeys towards Jesus. The harsh realities of their world began to set in and their circumstances began to define their God. When you step out towards Christ, you're going to be met with resistance and your circumstances are going to change. And when your circumstances change, the very easy thing that we can do is start to think that our circumstances define who is leading us. Our circumstances change, but our God doesn't. The God that is leading them for three days without water is the same God that brought them through the Red Sea. It's the same God that sent the plagues. It's the same God that brought them this far, so far, without any injury or loss. But them being thirsty out of the ordinary, away from Egypt, starts to taint their version of God. And God becomes their circumstances, which happens to me all the time. Seven years ago today, my wife and I landed in Seattle. We moved from the warm climate of California and landed here. It was a long journey to get here. Some of us, some of you guys have heard our story. We'll share it some other time. But it took a long time to get to this place. Before this, we, we were wondering where we're going to go. Where is God taking us? I had been through a few jobs. Carrie had been for, through a few jobs trying to figure out where God was calling us to. And all of a sudden, Seattle, a church called Bethany, said, come on up. And we're like, yes. Carrie was more excited to live in Seattle than I was. I like to surf and play golf every day. You can't do that here. You can. It's just wet and cold and muddy. But so we're, we come up here. Now, two days before we left to come up here, we had no place to live, not a house. And so here I am waking up in the middle of the night. We had sent our, tr- our moving truck away with all of our belongings. We figured that would be better. So why not? I didn't want to drive a U-Haul. So we get take the moving truck, took it away. They took our cars. We're living at my mom and dad's house, driving their cars and And the truck driver says, where should we deliver this? And I'm like, "Uh, space needle? Um, I have no idea. I gave him the church office address because he needed an address. And I said, can I update this? Sure, you can update this. Okay, great. And so here we are. Our stuff is somewhere between Orange County and Seattle. And, and, and then we're trying to figure out a place to live. It's two days before we get on an airplane and hopefully meet our stuff here. And we have no place to live. I like to stress out. And so I felt very comfortable stressing out. We had no place. Then all of a sudden this thing hit me. And, and honestly, I'm not trying to play the I'm holier than thou because I'm not. This thing said, Brad... And it was the Holy Spirit, Brad, I got you to Seattle. 
Okay, do, do you think I can find you a place to live? Yeah, I, I guess so. Sure enough, the next day, we're on a classified page that Bethany runs, and I'm scrolling through there frantically. I just need something. Uh, and then this place shows up. I call the, the number. I said, we'll take it. I didn't know anything about it. it. It was walking distance from the church office. It looked like a great place. There was three pictures. I had no idea if any of our stuff would fit, but we just went for it. Okay, we'll go. Land on the ground. My brother who lives in Linwood picks us up and we say, we got we to gotta go see this place just to make sure. It was perfect. The God who got me, us, my wife and I, to Seattle wasn't going to let us down halfway between Seattle and here. This is the first thing that we learn on our journey with God. God does not do anything halfway. He says in Philippians, I start something and I finish something. I don't start it and leave it hanging. If he's called you to himself, he's going to lead you the whole way through. God does not do anything halfway. Perhaps today you find yourself in a place where you're saying, God, have, are, are you going to come through again? Have you forgotten about me? I need this job. This relationship is trash. I, I, I need this. You called me here. You invited me here. Are you just going to leave me hanging? The answer is no. He will not leave you hanging. Watch what God does here. Uh, with the people of Egypt, or people of Israel. Exodus 15, 25. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. Now, some translations say that the water became sweet. I like that translation, because I think it became like Chick-fil-A lemonade. Uh, and, and now they can drink it. Uh, but here's three things I want you to see. Moses, the first part is, Moses cried out. We're going to pick this section apart a little bit. Moses cried out. Earlier in Exodus 2, God says that he heard the voices of Israel crying to him. And then he responded. Later, when Moses is at the foot of the Red Sea, he cries out to God and he responds. So here we have Moses again, crying out to God. And what does God do? He responds. He shows him a piece of wood. Now, there's symbolism all through Exodus that you, you got to check out. You got to read on your own time and start picking it out, okay? There's symbolism here. Moses cries out something that had been done in the past several times. Moses cries out. What's God do? He responds. How does God respond? In Exodus, uh, in Exodus he says he shows him a piece of wood. Go back in time. In Exodus chapter 4, there's a burning bush. Moses isn't sure if he's the right leader. What does God do? What's in your hand? A staff. What's a staff made out of? Wood. Okay? Then Moses is in front of the Red Sea. He's freaking out. The Egyptian army's coming down. The people of Israel are saying, we're surely going to die. Moses goes behind the tent, begins to pray, dear God, what are we going to do now? I'm stuck. And God says, what's in your hand? Piece of wood. Puts the wood over the water. Water splits. Moses is standing in front of Pharaoh, and he's like, how are they going to believe me? And, and, and God says to Moses, touch your staff, piece of wood, to the water, it'll turn to blood. Okay? So here, water sour. God, how do you... If you're writing stuff down, maybe you want to write this down. 
The desert is hot and and unpredictable, but God isn't. God isn't unpredictable. Your life and your journey are going to be unpredictable. God won't be. But if you base your view of God on the ever-changing circumstances around you, on the ever-changing culture around you, if you base what God says about what the people around you say, you're going to be a mess. God doesn't change. The environments do. God is always loving. God is always gracious. God, in his godlike attributes, does not change. Now watch what God does in verse 26. He says this, If you listen to me carefully, the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, I will not bring on you any diseases I brought to the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. So here's what's going on in the other overarching view of Exodus. You have a people who are going on a journey with a God they don't know yet. And throughout this time, God is showing them that he is trustworthy. He is kind. Look, I've brought you this far. You can trust me. You can follow me. And here's the deal. If you do what I say and you follow my commands, this journey is going to be nice and easy for you. If you know anything about the journey of Exodus, they don't do that. It kind of goes sour real quick. But this is the challenge. Stick with God. You'll be okay. Now, I don't hike. Many of you do, and you find it fun. That's crazy. I don't hike. But, but the little bit I know about hiking is that if you don't know the wilderness or where you're going, it's best to stick to the trail, right? Hikers, you agree with me? Okay. And if you don't stick to the trail, you better have someone with you that knows the wilderness quite well. If you don't do this, you're going to find yourself on the local news being rescued or something worse, right? Okay. Here's what's happening. God says, I'm going to take you on a journey to the promised land. This is where we're going. You don't know the way, but I do. And here's the challenge. Trust me. Trust me. Take the step. Trust me. I know the trail, God says. I know the wilderness. If you want this to go right, you're going to have to learn to lean on me. Don't go wandering off into your own directions. It's not safe for you to do that. You'll be in bondage to your own circumstances again and again and again. Trust God in this. Your circumstances have changed. It's okay. God's still there. Trust him. What's it look like to trust him? Obey him. Follow the principles that you find in his scripture. Dive into what you can learn about God, not what somebody else tells you about God. For 430 years, they listened to what everybody else said about God. And now they're dealing with God face-to-face, one-to-one, and they're learning what it means to trust God. Dive into what God is trying to show you. Get to know him for on your scale for what he wants to show you, not what he's shown other people. There's more symbolism here, okay? Verse 27. They came to Elam, where, they were there, where, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. And they camped there by the water. I love symbolism, okay? 12 springs. How many tribes of Israel? 12. One for each tribe. 70 palm trees. Now, do you think there were 70 or was this kind of like a, it's got to be around 70. We don't know. But here's the deal. 70 
in their time, in the way they thought, was a sign of completion. Seventy. So what the author's saying here is, look, 12 and 70. It's a way of saying that God took them to a place where there was plenty of provision. In the middle of the desert, God says, keep following me. I'm going to reverse the cause or how the circumstances feel. They say you should be thirsty. I'm going to show you that in the middle of the desert, if you follow me, if you stick with me, kid, you're going to be taken care of. 70 and 12 meant there was water for everyone and shade for everyone. God's saying, trust me, I'll take you to these places and you'll be fine. Elam is a reversal of the desert circumstances, but it's also a foretaste. They're day five into this journey. And he's saying, look, there's more to come. At the end of this, you're going to walk into the promised land. And there's going to be plenty to have if you stay with me. If you learn to trust. This Lent journey for all of us, whether you're fasting or not, is a journey towards trust. It's a journey in following Jesus. Taking up your cross and following him. This is what God wants us to do. This is a way of us getting to know him. And what God is saying to us, I think through Exodus and in in this Lent journey time, comes in Psalm 34. It says, taste and see. And what will you see? I'm good. Trust me. Taste and see that God is good. So where is God calling you right now? What's he calling you from? And there might not be a God is calling me here and he wants me to move here. It's, maybe it's not that call. Maybe there's some stuff going on inside of you. And God is saying, come on, trust me with it. Give it up. Maybe you're holding on to money a little too tightly. Maybe your relationship is being taken for granted. Maybe there's an addiction that you're like, I got to get rid of this. I got to take that step. What is it? Is there, is there a friendship that's gone sour that you got to take the step and make it right? God is saying, hey, trust me in whatever this is. Take the step. Trust me. And in trusting me, you're going to taste that I got your back through all of this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Take a step and see his provision. Why? Because when you look back, There's the Red Sea, there's the plagues, there's all the places that God took care of you. There's our 900 square foot house in Green Lake where he took care of us. There's that time when Judah was born where God took care of us. There's the in-between time in carrying my marriage where where things weren't well. God took care of us. What makes me think he's not going to take care of me here? Where has God met you in the past? And that proves that he can take care of you when you step into the future. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this journey that we're all on. We thank you that your promise is this and the invitation is that that we can taste and see that you're good. We can try you. And when we take that bite, we'll see that everything is good. And though the journey is hard, you're still with us. The circumstances get dicey. 
you're still with us. You still guide us. You still care for us throughout every step of this journey. Jesus, you say to people in Matthew 6 that are, that are worried about following your kingdom, you say, why do you worry about these things? Why do you worry what comes tomorrow? Why do you worry about what you're going to wear? Why do you worry about the hair on your head? Follow me. For your heavenly father knows and he takes care of you. And this is what you say to us. Follow me. Take up your cross. See that I'm good. See that I'm gentle. See that I'll take care of you. So God, as you're calling each and every one of us out today, may we be bold and take that step of faith and trust in you. May we see that you're good. In Jesus' name, amen.